All right, well, now's the time where we come to God's Word, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, if you're following along in the church Bibles, um, under the chairs, it's page 571, Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But he could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjashim, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of resonance in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, keep that open. Um, we'll be working through this passage together. We're doing a sermon series, Electrifying Humility in this season of Advent. And I want you all to have an electrifying Christmas. And the way I hope you'll do that, the way I hope I'll be able to push you in that direction to have an electrifying Christmas, is by having us consider, remember the theological meaning of this season as much as all the lights and the glitter that we see. Okay? Specifically, I hope that Christmas will hit a little bit differently for us this year. How? Well, my hope is that it will be through the experience of humility. Humility. Why humility? Because that's actually uh, the whole context, right, for the birth narratives of Jesus. 
and especially the birth prophecies of Jesus, which is what we're looking at today. You know, in this section of Isaiah, there are two huge prophecies. Uh, it start, this section starts at chapter 6, um, but here we've just read chapter 7, that the virgin will be uh, with child, and he shall be Emmanuel. His name shall be Emmanuel, right? And then later in chapter 9, we get that other passage. For unto us a son is born, a child is given. So this section of Isaiah is very significant for Christmas, but what do we know about it? For me, it was very little, and so uh, I suspect that there is something for all of us to learn because I'm guessing it's, we're not that familiar with it either, right? Humility would be a very big part of it. And today we'll see like this negative example of humility that screams, that is not the right response. The hope is that this passage will be a valuable lesson for us. And this context, well, it certainly informs us um, so that we might be able to see Christmas a little bit differently, where we're starting to really track with God, okay? Aligning with God more closely. Aligning with God more closely means that we'll start to see things differently, right? For instance, you know, Hollywood has made some very big films out of Bible stories. Because so many of these stories in the Bible, they're just like epic stories to tell. You got the Ten Commandments, Samson and Delilah, the Passion of the Christ. But you know, they would never have thought of making Isaiah chapter 6, the passage we looked at last week, into a movie. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6. They would think that that is a bust. But for us as Christians, as far as passages go in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6 is a blockbuster. There we got a glimpse of Yahweh and all of his glory and holiness. Very few people had that privilege. It was an electrifying, life-threatening experience for Isaiah. And if there was ever a, a, a classic response for humility, it would be before the holy, holy, holy God, right? That section, it continues to today. Isaiah chapter 7 about this virgin that will be with child. Isaiah chapter 6, the context is closely tied to this passage, and so that's why we're following this section along. All right, so with that, if we were to turn Isaiah chapter 7 into a movie, the opening scene, I would imagine, would go something like this. This is how I, as the director, the producer, would do it, all right? <laughs> you see a man running. Okay. It's an unusual scene because this man is wearing a crown. He is King Ahaz of Judah. See, it's unusual to see royalty move so quickly, right? Because when you have power, you don't need to hurry. Others do all the hurrying for you. But here is this man running all alone. And he's running and he's constantly looking back. His face turns forward towards the camera, and you see nothing but terror. He's running from something. He is afraid. He's trying to get away. Seems unusual, because where are all the guards? Where are his servants? Where's the city walls, the fortifications, the army? All that his power would afford him. 
What would terrify this king? That brings us to our text, our very first point, real dangers. Verse 1, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, there's the scene. Syria is in league with Ephraim, where Ephraim, Ephraim's another way of speaking, referring to Israel. Okay? You know, when the 12 tribes were divided, Joseph's inheritance, that went to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Over the centuries, Ephraim grew very powerful to the point that Ephraim would represent all the northern tribes of Israel. They're the, they're the, that's the kingdom that broke away from the two southern tribes of Judah. Now we're starting to see why King Ahaz is afraid. Verse 5. Because Syria, with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Right? What's going on? You have these two forces, Syria and Israel, joining forces, and they're about to take Judah, the, the kingdom that King Ahaz rules over, taking it by force. And they want to take Judah because they need resources. They need more power to go up against the big player, which was Assyria, the superpower of the day. Ahaz, the king, he's got a lot to deal with. A lot's at stake. He's the king of God's people, right? People of promise. They were raised up to be the, those who fight against evil, who fight for God's good. Shining the light of God's glory to the nations. See, Judah's deep calling, it wasn't just to survive in a land that they could call their own, but to carry out God's purposes of changing the world. And the chosen people of God, they have God on their side, but Ahaz, he's got all these threats right in his face. Syria, Ephraim, Assyria. What is Ahaz going to do? I need to fill in a little bit more to that story as to why Ahaz is overwhelmed. If you think about the king, what he's going through, what's the calculations in his mind is that he's about to be invaded by Syria and Israel. That's going to be a big loss. But then together, they're going to try to go up against Assyria, and that's going to be total devastation. He knows that even this alliance to go up against Assyria will not work. In your programs, I have a map for you there to look at, just so you get a sense in terms of the scale of like the powers that we're dealing with. It's a terrible picture. I am so sorry for that, right? But down at the bottom is Judah, and the purple is Israel, and above that is Syria, and then above that is Assyria, okay? So these are two small powers Israel and Judah, they're caught up in like this geopolitical situation. And King Ahaz knows he's, he's done for it. He's in for it. What could Ahaz do? 
or what else could he do? Well, he could make an alliance with Assyria, the big player. If you can't beat him, join him, right? <laughs> He's gonna, he could try to get into this wicked nation's good graces, have Assyria protect Judah from Syria and Ephraim. He could take his chances with Assyria, be subservient to them, right? By the way, the Assyrians, they were the ones who invented crucifixion. Okay? They, they're the ones that rose to power through sheer domination, merciless domination. Try to cozy up with them. That's what Ahaz is tempted to do. So the cards have been dealt. Ahaz's choices are take, be taken over by Israel and Syria to fight against Assyria or join Assyria. That's what's going on here. Now that opening scene of Ahaz running makes sense, right? He is facing a nightmare. He's trying to get away, but he can't. He can't avoid what he has to face. That's the real danger that Ahaz is facing. That brings us to our second point, false humility. All right, so now that it's set up for us, the Lord, in his grace, he sent Isaiah to Ahaz to let Ahaz the king know that the Lord will help him. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjashab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, I know all of that, it's like, what, what's, all, what's all that about? You, what you have to imagine is this scene, because it's, it's a very significant scene. It's, this particular location is, is really important for us. You have to remember that the immediate danger of Syria and Ephraim had to do with Judah's vulnerabilities. They hadn't been able to break through yet, but they're about to. And how are they going to do that? By cutting off Jerusalem's water supply. Okay, that's going to be victory. And so in this scene, you have Ahaz. He has arrived in this location, and what does he see? He sees water, he sees Isaiah, and he sees his son, Shirjashab. Isaiah would have bowed down to the king, introduced his son, saying, my son, his name is Shirjashab. Ahaz would have been like, that's an interesting name. It means a remnant shall return. You get that from the footnote in the Bible, all right? You got, you got to look at the Bibles. <laughs> a remnant will return. What was that all about? It's simply this, that children represent the future. We all know that, right? And the Lord is using this child as a living prophecy to represent the future. Isaiah is going to have a future with his son. And trusting Isaiah and the word that the Lord gave to Isaiah is how God's people would have a future. See, this child represented the hope of a surviving remnant in the face of all the dangers that Judah was facing. Okay? So that's what's going on in this scene. And so Ahaz would be told by the Lord this, verse 4. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. 
Isaiah gives Ahaz this image of two blazing torches, Syria and Ephraim. But then you see that water over there, right? The torches, they get plunged into that water. And when they come out, what do you get? Fire extinguished, nothing but two smoldering stumps. The water supply that I give, it is life-giving, says the Lord, and it is enemy-killing. That's what Isaiah, through God, is trying to tell Ahaz. What's that internet phrase about calming down? <laughs> no one in the history of calm down has ever calmed down by being told to calm down, so don't tell anyone to calm down, right? <laughs> you know what? The Lord, though, he can tell Ahaz to calm down. <laughs> but will Ahaz calm down? What it means for Ahaz, though, in this moment is to trust the king of God's people must exercise trust in God. There is nothing new here, nothing more. Verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. See, when the Lord says something like that, He's saying this is a very significant moment. This is what it all comes down to. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. See, the king, if he just trusts the Lord, he could change the future direction of the nation. This is what it all comes down to. The lead of the king. Trust the Lord. Don't fear Syria and Ephraim. Trust the Lord. Do not be afraid. Do not trust Assyria. Now, with that, it is so human for all of us to doubt still. And so what does the gracious Lord do? He says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. He really, the Lord really wants to help Ahaz to believe. Okay? That's what people do is we believe, right? We believe him. We live by faith, not by sight. And when you live by faith, it leads to all kinds of sight. It's not a blind faith. When you live by faith, it leads to all different kinds of new sight, visionary sight. And that's what the Lord wants to do for his king. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. You need to trust me, and I am going to help you to trust me. I'm going to help you to see. You know, it doesn't get any better than this, right? For us, when we're in desperate moments, it's like, we'll take anything as a sign. Oh, there's a rainbow. That must be a sign for me, right? But the Lord is telling Ahaz, no, you pick the sign. That way, you can be absolutely sure that when you see it happen, that was personally from me. Oh, we get Ahaz's pious answer. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. I mean, talk about a missed opportunity here, right? Why? Why wouldn't Ahaz take up the offer? 
the Lord, he sees through hearts and motivations and intentions, and this is what he says, verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Basically, the Lord was saying, Test me with a request for a sign. Don't test my patience. I mean, what else does the Lord have to do to convince Ahaz that a relationship with the Lord is based on trust, completely on faith? How else would Ahaz of Judah fulfill their God-given, earth-specific, God-glorifying call? Why would Ahaz refuse this offer? Well, you know, we can see it, right? All of us can see it. The dangers that were before Ahaz, they were more real than the Lord. The fear of the enemy was more real than the right fear of the Lord. What does fear stand for? False evidence appearing real, right? We know that one, right? Ahaz, he was so afraid that he had forgotten the Lord. The Lord that Isaiah saw in chapter 6. He had a very different view of that God. And Ahaz, though, he couldn't admit it, so he said, I will not put the Lord to the test. Let's call it for what it is, right? An excuse, a show of false humility. That brings us to our third final point, unbelievable sign. What does the Lord do? Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord gives Ahaz a sign, and he deals with the two threats that are right before King Ahaz. But does this help Ahaz? Well, with that sign, it's a strange one, isn't it? It's hard to believe. A virgin's going to be born with a child? How's that going to help Ahaz? It's almost as hard to believe that as believing that the Lord will help by dealing with Syria and Israel. And basically, it's not going to help. This sign is not going to help Ahaz. That's what we need to see because it serves as a rebuke against the king of God's people. And this is the explanation, verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. This is God's way of basically saying, by the time a baby is weaned from the breast and able to eat solids, that baby will know how to trust the Lord and choose the good right, and, and refuse the evil. That is how you, Ahaz, should have been. Trusting the Lord, really, it is child's play. If anyone can do it, it should have been the king of God's people, right? See, the sign of the virgin-born child, another living prophecy, like Shir Jashub. This Virgin-born child would represent the future hope of God's people because it wouldn't happen through Ahaz. And God dealing with the nations, the enemies, well, that was child's play for him, too. Verse 16, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as has not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay? The Lord's going to do what he said with respect to the two immediate threats, but he would also do what Ahaz feared the most. 
part of Ahaz wanted Assyria, and so God's going to give him Assyria, but not in the way that Ahaz wants. It's the Lord's way to show Ahaz that Assyria was not the answer. I was. The lack of faith from the king. See, this moment of refusing the Lord's help, this would be God's um, people's final descent towards destruction. Assyria, the superpower, would defeat Syria, 732 B.C., and then make its way down south to Israel, defeating Israel, 722 B.C., and then would advance on Judah, 701 B.C. Ahaz, he is an example of someone who needs help but doesn't want to be helped. It's as if he can't be helped. It seems like that no amount of faith that he can muster will help. He failed as king. He needed a better faith, didn't he? And the people that he led, they needed a better king, someone that they could put their faith in, someone who wouldn't display a false humility, but who actually trusted the Lord and could lead God's, God's people to do so as well. So there you have it. That's the context for the virgin birth prophecy. And with that, I wonder if we see that this sign of the virgin birth, pregnant with meaning, right? Pun intended, yes. But that's what Christmas is about. A God who would give us a better king, who gives us a better faith. Now, that, now we understand that. I want us to apply this. As we look at Ahaz, and I'll make two application points. First, embrace your humanness, and then second, embrace the help. This is going to come across as very odd, but the, this first application is embrace your human limitedness. Now, what does that really mean? You know, the vulnerabilities of our hearts is very um, complicated and common. And so, for instance, Ahaz, he could have seemed like someone who was too proud to ask for help. There are people like that. I think all of us can be like that to some extent, right? But I want to say that this wasn't sheer arrogant pride from King Ahaz, but it was desperate fear that got in the way. What Ahaz, what he couldn't do as a person, have faith, be firm in faith or you will not be firm at all, right? We understand that. I hope we understand that. See, we don't need to be put in a position of kingship of having all these responsibilities to feel the agony of having to trust the Lord in the face of our fears. We know how hard it is to trust the Lord when we're afraid. So how can this help us? How can we be helped through this, the reality? You know, I could, I could have said that, you know, the answer is repent and believe. Right? We know that. But I want to say that that won't help us immediately. Timing matters. Of course, repent and believe is the answer. But it's when we repent and believe. See, the actualization of us repenting and believing might involve additional insight, more understanding. Like, here's a truth that we all need to reckon with. We have to recognize that we are all limited as creatures. That means accepting that I can't handle 
every overwhelming situation. In fact, I'm not meant to. And for some reason, though, we think that we can. Some of us, myself included, we think we can actually fix the problems. We think we're clever enough. And I think all of us, we've come to realize or come to believe that asking for help is a sign of weakness. You know, these thoughts, they're not sinister thoughts. It just ignores our humanness, our limited capacity. And we need to have the humility to recognize who we are as creatures. And it doesn't help that the devil keeps us locked in, right? Stirring a little bit of sin in us so that we're afraid or ashamed to ask for help. Where he might prod us to think, no, you can do it. And so you try to compensate proudly. The way he works is just, he just keeps us from turning to the Lord. See, but we're all meant to turn to our creator because he's created us to be dependent upon him. And yet everything in the world shouts, you can do it. And the subtext, the underlying message is really, only you can do it. And, and this is what's so crazy. God has made us so capable. His handiwork in our lives, it is so remarkable that we can accomplish tremendous feats of wonder where we might then start to be duped into thinking, no, only I can do it. But it was always meant to be. All of his gifts to us, abilities, talents, opportunities, it was always meant to be in close relationship with him, dependent on him for more grace, for more power, for more wisdom. We need to hear more of, um, more than ever, what Thomas Aquinas said. Humility means happily admitting that we lack what we need and that others can supply that need. Humility means happily admitting that we lack what we need and that others can supply that need. And it doesn't get more beautiful than this. The, the law of God, which is to love God and neighbor, right? <clears throat> God has designed it for all of us to stay connected with him and with one another because we need him and we need each other in the most glorious way, which is love. Love that overcomes fear and that softens pride. It's a beautiful life that the Lord has created for us to live in and created us individually for, to be a part of. And the humility to recognize our proper place as creatures in faith relationship to the creator. Another Christian author describes it as joyful realism. <laughs> joyful realism. See, because the truth is, accepting our limitedness in our humility that's what gives us the vision to see how God is going to work in our lives. It liberates me from myself and my false views, either my lowly views or my exalted views of myself, to actually now accept myself without concern and instead focus on God. This is what Israel was supposed to teach the world, that we have a glorious creator up uh, who has made us to depend upon him for strength and courage and wisdom and purpose. For me, I have to say, midlife has been interesting and illuminating. 
I have been confronted with my limited abilities. My youthful vigor has led to some realism, but it hasn't been joyful all that much. I just remember, like, I can do all things, right? I don't have that anymore. I'm learning to embrace my limitedness, though. Um, and I know that if I could practice a little bit more of what I preach, I would be a lot more content. I'm still struggling to accept it. I'm still struggling to accept that I can't do all the things that I want to do. And you know what? It's not because there's something wrong with me, but simply because I'm a limited, finite creature. I mean, talk about liberating, being freed from the oppression of performing, right? And I'm still trying to believe that limitedness is not a weakness, but that is really hard to accept. And I don't want it to sound like an excuse. The only way it's not going to be an excuse is if I accept humbly that I need to depend on a glorious creator and redeemer. That's the only way. That's the truth, the glorious truth we all need to embrace. I need help with that, and I suspect many of us do too as well, right? That's our first application, embrace our limitedness. And, and that naturally leads into our second application, which is embrace the help. You know, Ahaz, he's such a beautiful picture for us, right? How he refused the offer of a lifetime. <laughs> we could see this situation and think, oh, what a fool you are. <laughs> and if we're a little bit sympathetic, he didn't know how to ask for help. That's what it really came down to. Even when the Lord told him and presented it to him on a platter, he didn't know. All he could do was show this fake humility. And so we see in Ahaz's limitedness, his humanness, that he needed a better fate too. And not only that, all of us, as God's people, we need a better king than Ahaz, a real human who trusted the Lord, where it was, showed, it was shown that it was possible for any human to trust the Lord. That sign, remember the sign? That was never answered, just lay dormant there. A word that seemed so unbelievable. So unbelievable that God's people, they would dismiss it and they would just carry on, um, let history and fate play out. But that sign that was given to Ahaz as a word of judgment, God would use that as a word of salvation when he fulfilled it. He would get people to believe it. That's the glorious news of Christmas, isn't it? I mean... I hope that we could all go out and have an opportunity to say to someone, yeah, I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Because that's the glorious miracle, the sign fulfilled for us. We needed a king. We needed a true human who trusted the Lord and showed that it was possible to trust him. And Jesus was that king, right? He humbly trusted his father to leave his glory and enter the creation. He embodied humility in the flesh cloaking his divine nature, trusting his father to, to the end. Was, was Jesus humbly dependent upon the father? We're thinking, what? He's Jesus, he can do all these things. John 5, 19. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, you know, in John, when he says truly, truly, he really, really means it, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Does that sound like humble dependence? Oh, yeah. It's the kind of trust that would lead Jesus to seek the Father in prayer, for help, for strength. The better king, the true human, who was fully qualified to lead God's people and to get his people to even start to think that way as well. And so King Ahaz, the opening scene, he was running, running from his fears, so panicked that all he could do was look back at all the dangers. And what didn't he do? Look forward. Fix his eyes on the one who could help him. He knew what he was running away from, but he just didn't realize who he was running to. That's the one that we all have. We can turn to him for help. So would we all dispense with the false humility where we say, yeah, I know God's a sovereign creator. He's my redeemer, where we would actually start to believe it and actually turn to him, right? And, I, I, and I'm going to say that it's kind of, it's, gonna, it's amazing that there are going to be some of us here today who might sound just like Ahaz still. God, I don't want you to have to deal with my trivial problems. You're too busy to pay attention to me. Can I gently lead us to the one who can help? Would you turn to the Lord Jesus and ask him to help you? Even to trust him. To deal with your deepest unnamed, perhaps even unidentified fears. I'm guessing all of us need help. If you don't, then you, then you really need to follow Ahaz, right? If you think you're fine, look at Ahaz. We all need help. Work situations, work temptations, marriage problems, health issues, anxieties, fears. It could just be just all that defeating head talk. And for whatever reason, we haven't turned to the Lord yet. I mean, to specifically name our issues, our problems, right? Brothers and sisters, Christmas is an electrifying time because we're celebrating the fulfillment of this sign, right? What we couldn't do, God did for us. The help that we didn't even realize we needed, God provided for us. This is the good news, and Christmas is the time for us to be woken up, to be dazzled with hope, to actually dare to trust the Lord. I have to say this, just on a side, but trusting the Lord doesn't mean we're saying, God, show me a sign, okay? We're not into signs anymore when we have the sign fulfilled, right? We're not asking, please help me see a sign. No. We need to be praying, help us to see the Lord and the hope that he can offer us. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas. Let's pray that it would happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us, and thank you that how you worked in all of human history, doing things that we just didn't think was possible or or thought was just blind fate, nations rising up and falling. But no, your hand was behind it all. We see that, and we believe that you are at work. 
And so we pray that you would be at work in us in this time. Because this season, Christmas, what it cries, uh, 